0: Thanks very much, Claire. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk you through some of the uh, principles about systematic reviews, and because it's a workshop and not a lecture, I'm going to ask you to do certain things. So the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is if people could let's you know, either two groups or three groups. So no one's sitting on their own on a table, uh, but. Um, yeah, it worked fine with either two or three groups, because I'm going to ask you to do some little things that we have to think about as systematic reviewers. Uh, so just, you know, form yourselves two or three groups, a minimum of four people in a group, let's say. Uh, and, you know, others may drift in. You have to shout. If you're going to stay that far apart, then you have to shout at each other as I give you these tasks. All right, okay. So we, we're all... We'll, this will work. So... Um, I'll talk, through why we need, I'll talk through issues about why we do reviews and then I'll talk through issues about how we do reviews and then I'm going to ask you some, uh, to do some tasks. <laughs> We're all consumers, payers, providers or carers in health and social care. And as interesting as I, you know, as I said this morning when I did the evidence aid talk, I'm not a, a practitioner of health or uh, veterinary medicine, um, but I was very interesting to see how uh, veterinary Medics, you refer to patients as well. So my slides are not uh, flawed. I was worried that my slides may be flawed. But you talk about your patients just as uh, the uh, doctors, surgeons, psychiatrists, nurses, and so on I work with also talk about their patients. So we're all involved in this, whether it's animal or human welfare. We hope that what we take or what we're given or what you give, if those of who are practitioners, will do more good than harm. So we need reliable, robust, trustworthy information. We need evidence that el- helps answer the question, what is likely to happen to me in the future, if it's about a question about me, or to you, or to them? That's, that's where I come from as I start you know, thinking about systematic reviews. We're trying to answer that question, and that's in the context then of doing reviews of the effects of interventions, actions, or strategies. So what's a systematic review? What do you think it is? So this is the first little task. I'm just going to give you 30 seconds in your little group to come up with some words or phrases that capture the essence of systematic reviews. You've got 30 seconds, because then I'm going to ask the tables to tell me some of the words or phrases you've come up with, because I'm going to try and illustrate to you that systematic reviews are about common sense as much as they are about science. So on your little table, try and make three words or phrases that capture the essence of systematic reviews, what would they be? And I'm hoping you don't have to say, well, I can tell you in 50 minutes' time when they finish talking. Uh, I hope you've got a little bit of a sense of it already. 20 seconds left, so it's a bit of a race. Can you get three words or phrases that capture the essence of systematic reviews? Okay, I'm going to stop you there. I'm fortunate both I have a, I have a loud voice and I'm also mic'd up. So you're going to have to shout now. So what have you got? Tell me some words or phrases that capture the essence of systematic reviews. A summary of, best a summary of the best available evidence, and I can see there's sort of caution in your th- careful crafting of those words. Yeah. So it's a summary, best available, not necessarily then a sort of little degree of thinking, well, it might not be good enough, but it's the best available, and it's evidence. Okay, so we've got some uh, microphones coming in. Excellent. Okay, well, the microphone reaches them. Pick up the microphone. Tell it, you know, the essence of systematic reviews. A study of studies. And you say that happily or sadly? Happily. happily. Okay, well, some people will say to us as reviewers, all you're doing is you're just looking at other people's studies, stealing it, reproducing it, and then going after a nice scientific article somewhere. And we would say, no, actually, it is, it is scientific. It is, a, it is a study of studies, but it's not just reviewing uh, the latest film. Anything from uh, your table? Um. Then pick up the microphone so everyone can can hear.
1: Um, We kind of thought that systematic review in itself kind of was a very good explanation of what it was. So we broke it down um, and we have got thorough analysis of high-quality evidence to answer a specific question.
0: Okay, excellent. And and one of the reasons I do that is you've got to think about, we call them systematic reviews. We don't call them reviews... We stick systematic in front. And we don't call them systematic research. We use the word review. And, so, and, and this is important, but you know, an emphasis maybe on high-quality research, an emphasis on best-available research, an emphasis on studies. So I, I showed this um, slide to some extent earlier in Evidence 8. I'm not going to go through it. But basically, it just talks about that one piece of the jigsaw. The systematic reviews I work most in are reviews of interventions and they're the part of the jigsaw that says does this stuff work? If it does work who does it work for? How how well does it work for them? If it doesn't work, is it useless or harmful? And we need to try and get to that question. Would it have happened anyway? And whether it's um, someone who's been diagnosed with cancer or a a, a cow that's got problems uh, feeding her young um, we can't do research that has a time machine. So we do something with this person with cancer, or with this cow, or with this herd, or with this dog, and then we go back in time and do the opposite with that uh, person, cow, herd, or dog. We've got to have. To, we're going to make comparisons, and these are some, just some of the issues about we have to think very carefully about for reviews. So patients, practitioners, policymakers, the public want to know about these things. They want reliable evidence, and that's probably going to be randomised trials, and then those randomised trials need to have been designed and interpreted in the, in the context of an updated systematic view. And one of the things I found really fascinating today is the synergies between animal research and human research. And we're all struggling with very similar challenges. And you know, to some extent, you know, we're ahead of each other in some areas and behind each other in other areas. But basically, one of the things that, that I'm sure you're going to hear about tomorrow from Rachel is waste in research. And one of the challenges we have in healthcare now, I mentioned it this morning, is there's a lot of waste. Some of that waste could have been prevented if people had actually reviewed what was already out there, what was already known. So we'll argue very strongly now in health that you should do a review before the next study and you should put the study into an updated review when you're finished to give decision-makers the information that they need. Why do we need them? Is it, we're just overwhelmed. And you know, people can draw graphs of how many research studies have been done in um, colorectal cancer or in dogs with broken legs or with um, cows that need antibiotics. And you'll just see, expert, you'll just see a growth uh, in that. And people have been talking about that growth in the information in science for decades. But There's an explosion and we can't cope. And over the last 20 years, it's just got completely out of control in the sense that we now have many more ways in which people can publish their research, make their research available with the explosion of journals that uh, I would imagine have happened in veterinary just as they've happened in human health. Uh, New journals are popping up on a daily basis. Some of them legitimate, some of them uh, potentially just scams to try and take uh, money from authors who they're asking to pay to publish their material, and then how long does the journal last? But it's much easier now to create a journal than it was 20 or 30 years ago when you needed a printing press. Now you need access to a server to place the journal on uh, the Internet. So reviews... um, seek to minimise bias, trying to be transparent, identify the needs for future research. Again, the, the, the slides have been told will be available afterwards. I don't read through the slides. You can read the slides faster than I can uh, read them out loud. Uh, but they follow rules. And then they follow rules which are scientific. I have part of a background um, of studying history and philosophy of science, and these are standard scientific The steps, you identify why you're going to do the study. You find the targets or the subjects or the participants for that study in a review. Those participants (coughs) of the studies we're going to review. It's a study of studies. You then assemble the most complete data set you can. You might do some mathematics on it. And the bottom point, and it came up in in a question this morning, you try and keep the review up to date. All on the second bullet is in brackets because I think anyone who tells you that they've been able to find all of the eligible studies for their review is either working in a very niche area or is over-optimistic. Because just as in healthcare, if I'm doing a review of dietary advice for uh, people who have just uh, been diagnosed with diabetes... I cannot possibly identify every trial ever done because those trials may have been done by single-handed GPs. I cannot write to every single-handed GP from the last sixty years across the globe who may have done such a study. And I imagine you have similar challenges in veterinary medicine.
1: One thing I've been finding, looking at systematic reviews, is the number of them that say, yeah. "The number of them that say, you know, I had these criteria." And then they put what seems to me totally arbitrary. And then I only looked at the ones published since two thousand and five, yep. or since two thousand. Yep. And why are they a priori removing older trials which could be relevant before they've even looked at them? And that's, it seems to me an awful lot of them are doing yep. that. And that I, it worries me that primary data is being lost through well, if it isn't new, it isn't any,
0: it isn't relevant. Yep. I would worry too, and I think, again, as the non-practitioner, it's the job of the practitioner to say, are you leaving things out of this review that could help me make a decision? And we we have examples in healthcare where if you leave out the old stuff, the old stuff is actually where the robust evidence is. Because after the old stuff nailed it, that the intervention works. The new stuff is tweaking. And you can end up with a conclusion that's just bizarre. I mentioned that I work in... Uh, reviews I work on treatment for women with breast cancer. We've also done reviews of risk factors, prognostic factors for women with breast cancer. One of the strongest prognostic factors is the size of the tumour. And the bulk of that prognostic research was done 30 years ago. No one is doing it anymore because it's just obvious. So the challenge is the clinician, the practitioner, has to look at the review and say, do your criteria for including studies match my needs? And you're going to see a, a slide that touch on that as well. So what's a good systematic review? These criteria, sometimes called the Oxman-Guyett Checklist, Andy Oxman and gordon were two researchers based at McMaster University in Canada. McMaster is often uh, credited quite rightly. It's certainly the founder of the phrase evidence-based medicine. And God guyett who's half of this, people like Gord guyett Dave Sackett at McMaster, created that phrase. Yeah, they they made the phrase. They didn't make the concept, but they made it, they they captured it as a phrase. And so Oxman-Gayat, these are things you could use to say, is this a good review? Clearly focused question. How have they appraised the studies? How have they sought and identified the studies? Are the results similar across the studies, which might give me more reassurance that it's going to be applicable to me because six studies done all around the world with slightly different doses are consistent. Well, the dose I'm going to use in my um, town, in my country, is probably going to be okay then. Or if they're very inconsistent, how do I know that the next time that I use that medicine, it's going to be beneficial? Even if the reviews, some of the studies in the review say it's beneficial, and some don't. So, and this touches really at the, the heart of one of our big challenges, because they are reviews. They are not prospective research. They are retrospective research. And we all are cautious about retrospective research because of the possibility that we knew the answer before we embarked on the journey. And that can be one of the big problems if you say, why did they leave out the old stuff? Oh, they didn't like the results of the old stuff. That's a nightmare scenario. Because you, the reviewer, are reviewing the results. And if you leave out results you do not like, you've got yourself in a lovely circle of proving the thing you want it to prove. Because the only results you keep in are the results you like. So you will get a result that you like. It's a circle. What we should be doing is saying, what are the correct study designs for my review? Not whose results do I like, and I want to loop them around. So they are retrospective. So you know some of the issues that this is to raise with you is, um, is the question too tight? Does the question match what you would like it to match? Is it possible that they made the question already knowing the answer they wanted to get because it's retrospective? Just as if somebody wanted to show that their way of managing a herd of cows um, is a, a good way to do things and it differs depending on how many calves the cows have had, so they make a theory and then they draw a graph and they're right, you should be asking yourself, did they already sit down at their laptop and draw that graph before they went to a statistician and said, Could you just help make sure that this graph is robust? Did they already have a feel for what was going on? That's our challenge with any retrospective research. The answer already exists. Is the researcher already aware of that answer? Inclusion criteria, same rules, they're retrospective. So if they say no trials from before 2000, that might be sensible, it might not be sensible. Is it biased? Did they deliberately wish to leave out those earlier trials because they didn't like them? Did they deliberately leave out trials from uh, Brazil because they, they knew the results and they were not fitting with their theory? Is it likely that important relevant studies were missed? Where did they search? When did they search? So is it up to date? I mean, we cannot have reviews that are bang up to date. Uh, they're not dynamic things. There's discussion now in healthcare about a concept of living reviews. As new studies come out, maybe they can be automatically put into the review. Some of us are cautious about that. We believe that we need a a thinking time and we know that there are certain biases in results coming out faster, the more exciting they are. So there's a little caution there. But, But reviews typically will have had searches done for evidence months before you're reading the review, even when it's freshly in print in your journal or freshly in print on the internet. The searches, the work will have been done months ago. So how long ago was it? Could things have moved on? And in healthcare, certain things are pretty stable. I'm sure the same in veterinary uh, research. But other things in veterinary medicine are probably moving so quickly that by next month, there could well be another study that belongs in that review. Did they appraise the studies? What makes a good study? And I'm not going to go into uh, some of that, but, but you have to think what would be a good study of this question. Were the assessments reproducible? Who did the assessments? When did they do them? Have things moved on? So we've heard about a consort statement, which is a guide to reporting randomised trials, other similar statements on reporting quality in veterinary medicine. Um, when were these assessments done? Against what criteria were these assessments done? Because there were, you know, we have reviews that, go, that are from decades ago now. Results similar from study to study, heterogeneity, the statisticians will help with that, but your sense as a practitioner also should help with that. And then the second half of Oxman-Gaia says, okay, let's have a look at the results now, not how they got to the results, and this, you can, we can apply this, to the interpretation of almost any study. But it's important to be thinking about it for reviews. It's important to think, are the value judgments made by the reviewers in accordance with what you would make? Have they looked for the outcomes you want? Have they made judgments about harms and costs that you would agree with? You might not agree that this intervention should not be used. That's their conclusion. If they've weighted some of the evidence in a different way to how you would (coughs) weight it. Again, very simple example in healthcare, if someone has a heart attack, there are drugs that can uh, help keep them alive, but some of those drugs have side effects that could lead to a disabling stroke. I have colleagues who would say, I don't want that drug, I know it increases my chance of surviving, but it also increases my risk of a serious disabling stroke, and I value my concerns about a disabling stroke more than I value the survival. And so on balance, I'll take another drug that maybe isn't quite as good on survival but doesn't risk the disabling stroke. So that's their value judgment. They're making a judgment on harms and making a judgment on costs. So I'm very quickly going to show you this example because then I'm going to give you the little practical exercise to do. So this is a review I've worked on um, throughout my career now with... um, I'm one one small member of a big team And it looks at a drug that is used for the treatment of women with breast cancer. It's a drug called tamoxifen. And the scientific question is, does it reduce the risk of the cancer coming back and the risk of the woman dying? So that's the scientific question. And then we hit the literature. The question of tamoxifen versus no immediate tamoxifen, and the relevance of that is if the cancer does come back, then tamoxifen will probably be used at the time these studies were done. So it was sort of, you know, use it now or save it until recurrence. 30 years of research, we could bring together nearly 90% of the data. The year missing 10% can't bias the results because those trials were too recent to give us the data we needed on 10 and 15 and 20 year follow up. 56 trials, 48,000 women, 18,000 of whom had sadly died. This is, you know, this is a nasty disease. But lots of people were studying it. This, some of you will have seen these, but this is what we call a forest plot. And the forest plot, see if the laser will work, down this side of the forest plot was recurrence, down this side is death. Each line on this forest plot is one of those 56 trials. And one of the beauties of the forest plot is that there's a solid vertical line. That's the line of no difference. If a study's confidence interval, I'm going to use words I'm hoping people are comfortable with, if it's confidence interval crosses the line of no difference, the study is not statistically significant. It has not shown on its own that tamoxifen is better than no tamoxifen from focusing on the the right-hand side on death. The the chunks are one year of the drug. So this is one or two tablets a day for one year, two years, three or more years, and typically this ended up being about five years. This is not chemotherapy. This is a hormonal therapy that should, in theory, how it works is it blocks receptors on breast cancer cells. So having removed the tumour, there are probably some breast cancer cells still in the body. Those may be stimulated by oestrogen. Uh, Tamoxifen, nice molecule, sits on those receptors and therefore blocks the simulation of those cells, so the disease will not grow back in the lungs or in the brain or in the spine. That's the, that's the biological rationale. But you can see just by looking at it, all of this research was done, and none of them on their own, apart from a very few down here, could prove it statistically. So we could walk away from this saying, we don't know. Lots of studies have been done. But tiny little marks on the graph are the averages. And those averages are highly statistically significant. Their confidence intervals are tiny. So the confidence interval of a study is the horizontal line. The confidence interval of the average is the width of that little smudge. So they're incredibly precise and a long way from no difference, but only by pooling. And just to illustrate the arguments, these are two studies. One of them is just significant, one of them isn't. This study was done in Europe, this study was done in North America. And people debated, why does this drug work in Europe, but not in North America? That was a misinformed debate. Both of these results are completely compatible with each other, and completely compatible with the average. You could look at that, and, and again, these are just to illustrate, in veterinary medicine, I'm pretty sure you will have studies that they say, "Well, so-and-so showed it worked," and someone else will say, "Well, so-and-so showed it didn't," and we can have a fight. Or we can do something sensible, pull the evidence and see, is there any reason to believe that the average is not a good guide? Because we know that e- these are big studies. These are studies this study has 2,000 women in it. It's one of the biggest studies of Tamoxipha. But it didn't have the power to confirm the benefit. Because the benefit is less than people hoped for. But it's a very important benefit. Then we could say, well, how sure are we about the treatment? And if we go down to this block, which is the five-year trials, and that's the common way to prescribe it now. So we take that block and we say, well, what does five years do? These are highly statistically significant findings. So the drug works. These are randomized trials. The randomized trials have been performed well enough for it not to be biased. It's not chance unless we're going to d- dismantle our entire research uh, and say, well, actually, in order to be significant, you now have to have a p-value. So, one of the posters that's been tweeted. It talks about the standard one of 05 and why that may be flawed. We could go to 01. This p-value is below 1 in 10,000. It's actually about 1 in 100 million that that would be chance. So if we look at that and say, well, it still be chance. Someone's going to win the lottery. Someone wins the Euro Millions. That's chance. But if we were going to accept this as likely to be chance, then we just give up on using any of our, um, doing any of our research and testing for the possibility of chance. But then it's also important to say, and this is contextual, it's not a wonder drug. This is 15-year follow-up. So the woman takes five years of the drug, by year 15, in the control group, unfortunately, 35% had died of their breast cancer. But two-thirds of them, which is up, this number up here, hadn't died of their breast cancer and hadn't had tamoxifen, so they did not need it. And this is just to justify, why do we need to pool this evidence? Unfortunately, a quarter of the women who did have tamoxifen still died of their breast cancer by year 15. But this is the key thing. This is the difference. This, what would have happened anyway? What would have happened without it? And it's that difference there, and it's 9%. And one of the ways that we translate that in healthcare, number needed to treat, which I'd be fairly uh, confident you're also using in veterinary medicine, for, on average, 11 women taking tamoxifen for five years, one more survivor to year 15. And uh, when you first present that, people think, well, that's a bit... You know, 10 women are treated, only one's benefiting. But it's an average effect. And two-thirds of them don't need it. And the problem is, the same as the problem that you face as practitioners in veterinary medicine, back here on day zero, you don't know who the winners are going to be. You don't know who the losers are going to be. We've got sledgehammer approaches, which says, let's just use it. On average, there'll be a benefit. One of the interesting things about this is then from that number needed to treat, we can say, well, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Anybody want to estimate how much, or anybody know how much tamoxifen costs? It's cheap. cheap. I mean, it's dirt cheap. Uh, It's about eight pence a tablet. Uh, So, for that one survivor to year 15, tamoxifen costs the NHS less than a thousand pounds. Less than a thousand pounds to treat 11 women to get one more 15 year survivor. It's a dirt cheap molecule to make. so, So, in the context of some of our, you know, Excitement that people get into around the very expensive cancer drugs. Then, here is a dirt cheap one. The world is moving on. There are now other you know, alternatives to tamoxifen, but it's still an embedded standard. Does it make a difference? I'm going to show these fairly quickly. So, these are, this is uh, the NICE guidance on early and locally advanced breast cancer diagnosis and treatment. And Jill Lang will be here tomorrow from NICE. And you might look, well, so the obvious question is, does NICE recommend it? Does NICE recommend that practitioners in the UK should prescribe tamoxifen. It doesn't actually recommend tamoxifen. So at first sight, you think, oh dear, what's gone wrong? Why it doesn't is it's part of the furniture. Tamoxifen has a long-established role, and this is because of the evidence from the systematic review. And we're very confident of that because of the debates that were taking place before the, before the systematic review. So we're not rec- tamoxifen is not recommended in the NICE guidelines. It's just part of the furniture. And this uh, very powerful graph, because we have no strong epidemiological explanation for this, screening may be part of the drop, but this is just showing from the 1950s in the UK and the US, deaths from breast cancer, age-adjusted, were going up, and then they turned down. And some of this downturn is almost certainly (coughs) due to the use of evidence from systematic reviews. But it's also because the drugs work. Tamoxifen works, chemotherapy works. For some other cancers, the drugs don't work. So this is an example of where the drugs do work, the evidence got out there, and practitioners started following the evidence. So what I'm going to do in the last uh, 15 minutes or so is give you a little task on the tables to get you in the feel of doing a systematic review. And the little task is associated with this stuff, coffee and concentration. (coughs) So we could do a review of whether or not coffee, has a relationship to concentration. And that's what I'm going to ask you to think about over the next 10 or 15 minutes. And I'm going to ask you to think about it in the steps that we would think about doing a good review. So the first thing you have to do is you have to come up with a question. And then we can come up with the eligibility criteria. So you have to imagine now on your table that the research funder, with an interest in coffee and an interest in concentration, says, I've got some money for you to do a systematic review. You make the question. What is the question for the systematic review? And I illustrated with the tamoxifen. The tamoxifen is a very precise question. What does tamoxifen do to recurrence and death for women with breast cancer? So it's got the elements. Again, you had a competition for the PICO. It's got something about the population, something about the intervention, something about the outcome. I'm going to just give you 90 seconds or so. So you're going to, you can't just you know, don't just sit and think and contemplate uh, and work by telepathy on your table. Make a question that could be the basis of a systematic review of the topic coffee and concentration. What would the question be? Discuss it because then I'm going to ask each table to see where we've got to with the question. It's to give you a feel for the review process. So um, timing on my second hand, 90 seconds. What question? could a systematic review address if the funder said I've got some money and I want you to study coffee and concentration so I'm putting you under a lot of time pressure for this and one of the things that you now need to do is get someone to write the question down because I'm going to ask each table to tell me the question you got to and yeah, I, can, I can say you've got 12 words or less uh, so that make, should make life a little, a little bit easier, 12 words or less what is the research question You got one? You nearly got one? It doesn't have to be the best question in the world ever. I don't have um, vast sums of money to commission the systematic review. It just needs to be a question. Okay, I'm going to stop you there. Who wants to go first? So so if someone's already nailed their question, they can go first, while the others are still adjusting. But over the next 30 seconds or so, let's hear the questions. Go on, what have you got? Okay, the question is, does coffee... We'll have to Drink read it. drinking by students affect exam results. Okay. Okay. So popular, you know. So coffee drinking by students, exam results. Other one of the other tables. Got it. Pick up the microphone and tell us the question. Have you got yours? They're still writing. Have you got a question? No. No. Well, where, where have you got to? Have you got half a question? Give <laughs> some, absolutely. So this was a test I should have been observing, uh, which tables were their coffee uh, consumers? They've got lots of cups, but not much coffee. Go on, take the microphone so that everyone, because it's, um, it's a long so way over there. Our problem was that we couldn't really decide how to measure concentration. Yep, yep. They decided to go with exam results. Do you like that idea? Yeah. Yeah, okay. What have you got? Go on, pick up the microphone.
1: We've got, are, those, are, are people in a lecture theatre who drink coffee better at remembering facts than those
0: who don't? OK. Do you think that when people pick up a topic for a review, they all choose the same question? Now you know that they don't. Some will get bogged down. Some might be thinking, we need an expert at our table. Who needed an expert at their table on coffee? Who needed an expert on concentration? Yeah, you know. so, so we have experts, we have expert coffees. So now we have to move on. We're going to take your one. So this is students drinking coffee, exam results. So you're going to think about the eligibility criteria if that was the review you're going to do. Go on. How do we know concentration directly relates to exam results? We don't, but they, they tell us it does. They want our money. To do a review where they're going to focus on exam concentration experts. Absolutely, and one of the things you've got to think about is—is that my (laughs) my question was concentration? That's why I put the put it back up. So, are we going to use proxies or surrogates, which is the language um, I'm accustomed to in healthcare research for that? So, we're going to use something: exam results, routine data, nice and easy. But someone may say, "But I want to know about concentration, and I don't, not sure exam results are." But for now, we're going to go with that. So, again, in a minute or so, think about the eligibility criteria that you would use for a review. And this is all it's to do is to make you feel what it's like to do a review. But you're feeling what it's like with a minute, not with the hours that we would take if we were working on this review. So the question is, does, drink, do, does drinking coffee by students improve their exam results? On your table, come up with who would be the participants for the review, what is the intervention for the review, and the outcome measure. Let's not worry too much about study design. Again, just in a minute, build the fence. One of the ways that I try and get people to think about this is you're building the fence for the review. If stuff's inside the fence, it's eligible. If it's outside the fence, you don't want it. So who are the people you would wish to study? What is the intervention and what is the outcome measure? Okay, 30 seconds more. Again, this is you know, uh, uh, an exercise in you getting some of the way in very, very limited time, but also hopefully beginning to get a feel for what has to go through the mind of a systematic reviewer and what should go through your mind if you're reading someone else's review. Do you agree with the fence that they built? So, 20 seconds. Okay, I'm going to stop you there. Which table would like to tell me about the fence you would build for the participants? We're going to, you know, so, basically, there are three issues... One table per issue, so if you you haven't got much on with the other ones, you better put your hand up now. So what's the fence for the participants? They've got the microphone, go on, what's the Uh, fence for the participants?
1: We said undergraduate university students.
0: Okay, undergraduate university students. How do the others feel about that? Is that roughly what you were thinking? Yeah, roughly or exactly?
1: Roughly. Roughly. Roughly,
0: how does it vary a little bit?
1: We just said on a university course, and we've considered putting an age limit, an age range on
0: it. Okay, so you may go with age. They went with the deg- the degree that they were doing. Were you just undergraduates?
1: We hadn't said that. We suggested we either just on a university course, okay. or we considered an age. So it range could
0: be someone who's there for the weekend learning French yep you 're still out, you can see and there 's a lot of arguing needed. How do you feel about the participants? Is it undergraduates on a uh, university course? We,
1: we went from undergraduates and then narrowed it down to students within a cer- certain year group. Okay okay, exam. why
0: did you narrow it down <laughs> To reduce the dirtiness of the data. Absolutely, and and I can again. You know, I'm not a vet, but maybe someone says, "Well, let's study cattle," and then somebody says, "No, let's study a particular type of cow," and somebody says, well, "Let's look at a particular type of cow of a particular age," and it's narrowing down and narrowing down. The downside is you could walk away from the review saying there's no evidence, yes. and then somebody says, "Well, actually, there's another species of cow, and I've really no, you know it's been well studied, and I think I could borrow from it." There's also yep. the
1: possibility of is it then going to be applicable
0: in a wider sense? Yep, yep, absolutely. Whereas, but it's dirty data. You know, we've got all of the different year groups. We've got all of the different degrees. Now is it applicable? And I, ca- you know, I can't give you the simple answer. The intervention, what did you come up with? What's the fence for drinking coffee? What is the fence? Because you, you have to build the fence as a reviewer because this is operationalising their question, which was about students drinking coffee.
1: We, we decided that there was a potential confounding effect of caffeine. So we had okay. to say, okay, we're deciding that it's people who drink caffeinated coffee. Ooh, we didn't,
0: ooh okay. That was okay.
1: versus, because we said, okay, otherwise we're going okay. to have to divide them okay. into two groups. Are they yep. you drinking caffeinated or uncaffeinated? Yep. Okay,
0: good, very good point. Um, on the table, who are the coffee drinkers? Who likes the coffee on your table? Gives me headaches. Gives you headaches. You okay? Do you, like, do you like your coffee? Yes. What's decaffeinated coffee? Is that coffee? Sometimes I like to ask this question and it's it's sort of, oh, not coffee. Don't you dare give me a cup of... Are you a, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, but what matters is what, whether people think then drinking it whether it's got caffeine or not. Okay, so now we're thinking about the placebo effect perhaps or something. Yeah, okay. And the outcome measure. What was the outcome measure that you would be building the fence for? Because they wanted exams. Exam results. Which exams? Absolutely, you can start thinking about: is it a pass? You know, what did I mean by the result? Is it some mark? Is it an average across their entire program? And so we might. So, undergraduates, were you thinking the final exams? No, we were thinking any exam exam that they may have done, including you know maybe they were uh, had to do a six weeks foundation in mathematics. Uh, to, to kick off the uh, course to become a vet. But then others may be saying, well, actually, given how we narrowed our question down, if it's a particular year group, then it'll be the exams at the end of that year group, maybe. So I can't, you know, I, because I've narrowed down in one place, I've maybe lost it in another. Searching for studies. Tell me some of the words you would use to search for coffee. Caffeine. Caffeine. Won't be a very big search. Mm -hmm. I know. Again, I've been been listening and looking at the programme, and Kirsten was talking about the online learning materials. So is that it for coffee? Do we need a librarian? Uh, Coffee, caffeine. caffeine. Is it called anything else? (laughs) (laughs) Concentration. So, so you're now thinking of those but even just for coffee is it just going to be is it just going to be simple words it depends on the outcome and that's one of the things is when we're planning reviews every little bit sort of feeds into the other bits but i you know words for for coffee um just th- you know we need to think about those things and where would you search would we search pubmed so pubmed has been mentioned a few times that's our main health database would we search the educational literature our challenges as reviewers can sometimes be, well, where would this you stuff be? Fact, hmm? This is social might be social. You probably science, wouldn't
1: though. get that in, in uh, it, a lot of it because you'd lose it in Absolutely,
0: absolutely. And you would be looking in the wrong place and you walk away saying, there's only two studies ever done, we can't answer our question. And then somebody says, well, why didn't you search the psychological literature, the educational literature, where to search, what words to use? And then heterogeneity. Yeah, go on just wanted if I could ask a question about this whole process. If we were considering a large primary research yep. study, we might do a pilot yep. exploratory study to assess feasibility, practicality. Is it, does it undermine your systematic review? If you try, come up with a, a basic idea that you'd like to do, have a start, have a look at it, yep. and then say, this hasn't worked, or this sounds good, we'll carry on? Or? Yeah, well, I would be careful about that this doesn't work, or this looks promising. But one of the things that we might do at the beginning of a review is some sort of scoping quick search and say, is this this going to be productive? Have people actually studied what we want to study in our review? Because if there are no studies out there, well, we'll identify that as a gap. But, you know, are we excited by that? Probably not. It's still an important contribution. So you might scope. The caution is, don't look at the results of the studies and then proceed or abandon on the basis of those results because you're in the circle. You're in the circular argument. But on heterogeneity, is all coffee the same? Again, the coffee drinker, is it all the same? Are you an instant coffee or an espresso uh, person? And just think about heterogeneity. Um, If we were going to do this study in Italy, what's a cup of coffee look like? So we're the reviewers, and we're looking global, looking at students across the world. We've got a study from students in Italy. What's their coffee like? It's espresso. how many milliliters of that is it? Um, teachy teachy and if we go to Seattle yes. how big's their coffee A liter, a bucket so we've got a study of a, <laughs> students drinking a bucket of coffee students thinking a you know a little bit and all coffee's not equal and do we think it might have an impact on the level of uh, the student's concentration yes yeah so we got to think. This Directy. is heterogeneity but directly. So concentration of coffee, and that was one of the tricks with the actual topic, is that somebody might say, "Well, what I'm interested in is the concentration of the caffeine in that cup." And then milk and sugar—is that coffee if you put milk and sugar in it? Is that you know, if it's is it is it coffee? Maybe it's the sugar that's helping the concentration. So just to conclude, and that was just to give you a little exercise over 10 or 15 minutes. If you're going to plan that review, you spend a lot more time and you get the expertise in, but you start thinking. Throw-away topic, coffee and concentration, not, maybe not all that important. The reviews that you might work on or the reviews you're reading are much more important than that. So conclusions, we need this reliable evidence. There are systematic reviews that will help. They're based on the past, and you as practitioners have to decide if the past will inform the future, and usually it does, otherwise you wouldn't send people to veterinary school. You might as well just go out and practice. You, know, you go to veterinary school to learn from the past, because we believe that it will be applicable to the future. But one of the reasons we sometimes legitimately won't use studies from too far in the past is because things have moved on. And I would imagine in veterinary medicine, you now have diagnostic techniques. that You would say, well, actually, that sick animal from two years ago with that diagnosis is completely different to the one 30 years ago. And we didn't have as good a diagnostic tool. So sometimes it's legitimate not. There are tens of thousands of systematic reviews, mostly of the effects of interventions. And one of our challenges in healthcare is that they're, now, they're just exploding. They've gone out of control. The way that the literature was out of control, we now have about 11,000 reviews appearing a year in medicine. Many are duplicates. Many are unnecessary. They're of different qualities. And we're having to think about, well, we're you know, we going to need some layer on top of them to, uh, say, what you know, a review of reviews. They need to be kept up to date, but we still have gaps. If you, if you do a review of a systematic review, yep. Yep. do you have to use the same criteria to make that review valid? No. Nope. You use your criteria because some of the reasons sometimes we're doing a new review is because we're looking and we're thinking they've, they've searched very narrowly. Typically in healthcare, they may have just searched the English language. And we know from empirical research of methods... But that's biased. If a German researcher has got an exciting finding, they're going to try and get it into the English language. They're not going to stay in German, and that's not you know some sort of stereotype of the German researcher. That's based on people that have studied the output of German research, and I'm, picking, I'm stating it from Germany because that's the study that was done. We expect similar things for the other uh, other languages. We know that if we've got an exciting trial, we're going to in healthcare. I want that in the Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine. And they want it if it's exciting and they think their readers will be excited and they think it will draw attention to the journal. So we know that these biases uh, can exist, so sometimes the review hasn't addressed those biases adequately and we want to try and beat it. You make the comment there there are tens of thousands of systematic reviews. That's true in medicine, but in veterinary medicine... That's one of the problems, yep. because the size of the studies tends to very often be very small. Yep. So the numbers of studies are low, yep. and the opportunity, therefore, to do systematic reviews is quite difficult. So I think, yep. I think we have something like yep. less than 300 But I predict that five or ten years from now, you'll face a similar explosion to what we're seeing in healthcare because there's always almost a factory of, oh, look, there are four studies. Let's knock up a review in the space of a few months. We'll get that published. Let's move on. And it's not necessarily being done by people that really are prioritizing the questions. So I think you're going to see that. But increasingly, therefore, with that dearth of reviews, now's the time to start filling it. In the 1980s, healthcare was probably down around the few hundreds. And it gradually, 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 and then it's just gone. It's gone uh, crazy. Uh, I'll just put the, yeah. those up because that's the final sort of slide, uh, emphasis. Go on. As an aside, you said yep. during your previous presentation that often it could be two or three years for an update to appear. Yep. Is that because the studies are too big, too wide? Because that seems to me a, a major problem if it's yep. going to take that long to... To update things. It can be tiredness on the part of the reviewers. Sort of, I, need a, I need to have a, a lie down and think about this for a little while. It's also a sense of well, maybe we need enough time to pass so that we're not going to be having a, sort of a, an exciting study came out, knee-jerk, put it in the review. The review jumps a lot, and then there are similar studies ongoing that are not showing anything exciting, and they're staying in the in the you know behind the scenes. So that sometimes it's that um, that that will take a few years. Some reviews are not updated for five or ten years. And we're trying to look now in healthcare, and because we've got the big body of reviews in healthcare, we can use that now to do um, almost observational epidemiology on the reviews and see which ones get updated. Does it make a difference? Are there triggers that we could use for updating. And I think as veterinary uh, reviews come along behind, you should be watching those developments and learning from it because we've been making mistakes in healthcare, and we've cracked some of those mistakes, but in veterinary you do not want to make the same mistakes. Uh, again. So that's the sort of flow uh, that I would believe is the logic flow, and um, that's my uh, email address if anybody has any questions. I'm conscious of the time, so I'm going to finish Um, whirlwind 50 minutes on systematic reviews uh, but hopefully you got a feel for what you would have to think about if you were doing one and what you will have to think about as the number of them increase because if they don't increase you're going to be faced with this spread of studies and people saying oh believe my study believe my study and you should be saying well even if there are three or four and only three or four other ones why should I believe your one show me them all then I can make a well informed choice thank you
1: Thank you very much, Professor Clark.